Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. In today's episode, I talk with Camilo's dad. Doug is the second dad I've had on the show, with the only other dad being my husband, Eric. It is so nice to get another dad's perspective on the death of their child. He talks about societal differences and how men and women are expected to grieve. Doug is also a pastor, so we talk about how his faith affected his grieving. We also talk a bit about theology and how he does not think about the deaths of his son Camilo or my son Andy as being part of God's great plan, as many might say. God is there to offer comfort and compassion, surely, but saying to parents this is part of God's plan is not helpful or in his mind even accurate. Doug is quick to say that many people may not agree with him, but that is really okay. Again, I want to remind people about the upcoming Moments of Hope episode. If you feel like you have a story of hope to share, email it to me. This may be a memory of your child at Christmas time or a family tradition. It also could be something that is comforting to you if you have lived through the holiday season without your child already. Email me at marcy at andysmom.com. Enjoy the episode. Well, I'd like to welcome you today, Doug. Thank you so much for coming in. Happy to be here. Um, so this is uh, the first time I've gotten to have a dad on other than my husband, Eric. So I'm very excited to get a little bit of a dad's perspective. Um, so first of all, I want you to just tell everyone about your son. All right. Uh, that's always a joy. Our son is Camilo, we kept his uh, name that was his given name. We adopted him from Colombia. He was about a year old uh, when by the time everything was able to happen and we uh, were able to go down to Colombia and pick him up. And we wanted him to be proud of his uh, Colombian heritage. So, And he looked like a Camilo. He was just this beautiful sort of uh, bit of a, a Mayan uh, or Aztec-looking uh, child with just curly hair and... Uh, you know, nice round brown cheeks and uh, and his personality to begin with, uh, he was a failure to thrive. So it took quite a while to mm-hmm. for his personality to really come out. But then he just was a, he was just an absolute delight. Uh, fun kid, funny kid. Um, he had some medical challenges that we'll talk about, but um, um, overcame that. And he was the kind of person that uh, if he saw you and your spouse. Um, and he would get both your names, and then if he saw you a month later and your spouse wasn't with you, he would ask where he was by name. Wow. Yeah. Or That's the, impressive for yeah, a five-year-old. Yeah, or the car you drove. He'd know the car you drove, and he'd say, that's like grandpa's car. Um, so, you know, he had those, even though there were some things that he just couldn't pick up and and likely would have struggled in, in school, He um, his his relational skills were were pretty remarkable so mm-hmm. people so people just really really attached to him because of course he attached to them and he was just a, he was he was a lot of fun that's great that's great so um now let's talk a little bit about his medical struggles and what ultimately ended up happening okay um he had hydrocephaly water on the brain and had he had been abandoned in Colombia, a young mother, uh, evidently, and so taken to the hospital. They figured out what the what was going on because uh, he was having seizures and so forth. So they did put a shunt in to relieve the pressure. Um, but so then he was in an orphanage, and he was doing okay in the orphanage. But um, 
Then he got a little bit older and moved to the part of the orphanage where he didn't get as much attention, and he was a failure-to-thrive child. Yeah. But we had been going through the paperwork, which takes a long time to get everything translated. And it just is quite a quite an endeavor. Uh-huh. But there were people working with the orphanage that, um, knowing we were on the way, and this was a little before Christmas time, took him in, took him to their family compound, and of course in much of Central America and South America, the you know Christmas holidays are huge. Yeah. So um, I think from mid December through mid January, he was with the whole big extended family, and of course got lots of attention, which is what a failure to thrive child needs. And um, how old was he? He was he was a little under a year. Okay, I don't know his exact birthday. Sure. They gave him an April first birthday, which kind of fit him, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he was a little under a year probably. Um, and then, so when we actually went to Colombia, we stayed with them because he was actually sick when we got there. Yeah. The U.S. almost didn't let him in because they thought he was going to be a burden on the state and so forth. But we managed to get around all of that and ended up uh, with him, him coming to the U.S. Really with just self-stimulation behavior. I mean, he, you know, he looked down his arm at his hand and um, just really, you know, didn't have much... Uh, much real interaction with mm-hmm. with people, but with a lot of attention, a lot of work, uh, um, a lot of help from lots of places, um, including including Ken O'Shea, which he was a part of from from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, he just flowered. He came out uh, and as a you know just and developed well, delayed but developed well. Spoke uh, <laughs> once he started speaking, he didn't stop. Uh, once he started moving, he didn't stop. Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> he he did have a seizure disorder, so that slowed him down. And it was, you know, there, just all that was sort of routine in some sense. I mean, you know, you just deal with it. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just part of your normal life. It is part of your normal life. And, it doesn't seem unusual at all. Right, and and he had to deal with it. And, and we as parents just didn't make a big deal of it because that was just one of the things in his life that he had to deal with. And mm-hmm. But he, uh, so he had meds for that, and um, the, actually they didn't think that he needed the, the um, shunt, which it turned out he did, but he was having struggles with his medication, and so they were in the process of changing his meds, and um, so the, that uh, med change mask um, a problems with the with the shunt the pressure build up and so we didn't and the you know medical people didn't didn't recognize it in fact I walked him past the emergency room that day to get a to get a blood test and um so one day he was doing fine and the next he died at five and a half wow I'm so sorry that's just terrible to have it happen like that too well it's it's terrible when it happens anyway I mean and you know it's one of those things that you that you don't think you can survive. You know, you just, it, it happens. You go through the motions to begin with. It's just, yeah. Yeah. There, there are struggles both ways. I know I was just doing some reading on when you have someone that dies of chronic illness, you do have some time to say goodbye a little bit and settle. So the, that can be nice in some ways, although it's hard to mm-hmm. watch your loved one suffer Um, but then when it's completely out of the blue and unexpected, it's such a shock to the system. It's very, very hard to accept. It is. And you don't, you don't have time to, to prepare. You don't have time to say those final things that you, you know, want to be sure you, you know, are said. Um, Mm -hmm. and and of course, as a pastor, I've dealt with death of, you know, a lot of people. And of course my, my parents' deaths and so forth, um, both of which we saw coming. My mother's not so much, but um, death of a child, of course, is a whole different world. Yeah, yeah, it is, absolutely. So um, it must be difficult, though, to be a pastor. You are used to being the one to kind of give support to others. How did you get support? People were were certainly very supportive. Um, we knew a lot of people. I knew a lot of people in the city. I knew a lot of people in in the church, of course, and fellow clergy and so forth. But it it was interesting. It was it was sort of different. I mean, because they, you know, people were able to you know be present, and 
they were wonderful to Camilo when he was living because, again, failure to thrive child, so you need attention. And so they were wonderful at giving attention. So they felt the loss acutely. Yeah. They felt the loss for us, but felt helpless to do anything to help. Mm-hmm. And yet I was still their pastor and still needed to, you know, to pastor. Um, and I was, you know, relatively young. Um, we were in our mid to late 30, mid thirties, um, a little bit older than that. Um, and I think it, I, I don't ever, I don't quite know what, what happened. We all, we, we did fine, but there was a time there that was kind of strange because I don't know if some, I lost some of my luster, if it could happen to me, mm-hmm. it could happen to them. And so young families, parents with young children, I just, I, I don't know if it was that they didn't quite know what to do to help me, or I think more it was just a little bit, uh, wow, if it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. Yeah. You know, it's just, a, I, and I, I don't think I will ever figure it out. I've done a lot of thinking about it and reading, never have really seen anything on, you know, on that phenomenon. Um, we all weathered it well, though. Um, I stayed, you know, I can, in fact, the Sunday he died on a, on a, well, we, we did organ transplant uh, donations, so he died officially on a Tuesday, and I went to the church the following Sunday to do the children's time because the kids knew him, so I wanted to talk to them directly. And then I, and then I left and was off for just a couple weeks, came back, did my regular pastoral work for a year and a half, and then I took a sabbatical. Yeah. Because I had, you know, I just, it, everything is is a burden, just everything. It takes so much energy just to carry on. And so I just needed a break at that point. And well, it, and it's hard to help others when you so need it yourself sure. too. Yeah. I mean, I, I tried going back as a pediatrician about five weeks after Andy died mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and lasted a little over a month. And I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I just could not. It was it was constant reminders. Every patient, I I honestly cried between every single patient wow. mm. because it just was right there in right. my face. Right. It, similar to I think what you said with some of those younger families, things, and and they were awkward with me too. And still, people are sure. right because they all think that. Sure. I know they all think. Man, if her son can die, so can mine. Right, right, exactly. And they don't know they don't know whether to ask how you're doing or right. to ask about your, you know, to to tell have them tell you about you tell them about your son. I mean, you know, they just do you avoid it because it's just it it's awkward and people. Well, are... and initially when I did go back, I told the staff to tell them to not talk about it because mm-hmm. I didn't think I wanted to talk about it because. I, it just felt so fragile. And and now going back, I I wrote a letter actually to the staff and that I published on the website so the patients can read. And that's okay. It's okay to ask. And it just and and to not let them ask is not fair to them in some way. Absolutely. I think it's imp- I mean, as a as a pastor and just even not as a pastor, just as somebody who understands the importance that the you you are afraid that the person is going to be gone, that the person who died is going to be gone, that their memory is going to be gone. You And this is such a big part of your life. You want people to know about it. Right. And so we have a second son now, but even now people ask, how many children do you have? Mm-hmm. And sort of depending on the situation, but I very often say two. Yeah. I mean, because I have two. One of them is deceased. And if I, on my bio, you know, number of children, two, Camilo deceased. Because- He's my son, and I, you know, it's something I want people to know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too um, about those families that I followed for years and years and years. A lot of them, I'm the only doctor they those kids had ever had, exactly. and I know it. And I, I'm like almost a part of their family right. in some way. Absolutely. So I know you mentioned your pediatrician, Camelo's pediatrician, um, when you walked in. And how many years has it been? I mean, it's a long time. A long time. And But yet you still think of him and remember him fondly. So when I think about my patients, I know they've been praying for me and thinking of me and worrying about me. And for me to say, you can't ask me how I'm doing or 
anything about my son is totally unfair to them. And right. it puts them in a very awkward situation. Right. So uh, you do have, well, I mean, I shouldn't say have to, but it is best if you can allow people to speak to you kind of openly. Right. Um, first of all, it helps them understand. And secondly, it really does keep the memory of your child alive. Yeah, it, it really does. And as I say, and it's so present for you that to not be able to speak about it, um, especially, you know, earlier on, which which is the first several years, still, still, you know, it, it, you want to be able to share that so much a part of, of right. who you are. Right. And, and I used to think about my kids all the time when I was seeing patients, right? Of course. I mean, I'd see a kid playing soccer, two brothers coming in, you know, family with three kids. I would think of my children. Sure. Constantly. So to expect to go to work now and not think about them is crazy. Well, and it, and the, and what's and I tell people often, you'll be surprised at how present the person who passed away is. If you think about your children, they they're always just on the edge of your consciousness, mm-hmm. anyway, living or past, and they still are, even if they've died. So that doesn't change, and that that sense of that presence, I think, for me is. Um, and so, yeah, when you're thinking about your kids when you were seeing patients, you still do. I still do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it may cause me to tear up sometimes, and that will be okay. Exactly. Tears, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 not a sign that I'm being weak or anything. Right. And- or that you can't be helpful. You know, you're a doctor, and so, you know, that yeah, the tables aren't turned. You're still their doctor, but there's a vulnerability that that people understand, which doesn't mean that you can't function. And they all do understand in some ways, too, because I see parents. They all have children (laughs) or they wouldn't be seeing me. (laughs) And they can, I mean, they don't really understand, but they can think, oh, my word, if it can happen to her, it can happen to me. Just like what you said. And I can't even imagine losing my son, losing my daughter because I love them so much. So it does give them some appreciation, you know, unlike some people that you might meet out in public. Right, right. It, and, and it's clearly it's clearly every parent's worst fear. Yes. And in the position that we are in, you know, in West Michigan, you know, and for a lot of folks, that's that's a very, very remote possibility. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I deal with a lot of people internationally and, um, you know, I'm aware that this isn't very rare for a lot of parents no. and they love their children no less than we do. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, that that brought me some just more emotional closeness, I think, to parents, especially parents who are in difficult situations who children, whose children really are vulnerable and for whom the death of a child is so much more more common. Well, I, I think about my foster son, Valeriano, mm-hmm. who's who's from Guatemala, and um, he has uh, he has living two three living sisters now. One was born after he left, and one living brother. But he had you know two others who died as infants, and I think his mother had miscarriage or two, and so she had experience, Mm -hmm. you know, loss, Mm -hmm. and certainly when he came and, you know, he's in kidney failure, he would have died without a kidney transplant. I mean, I know she's very thankful. Certainly. That he is living. Right. Even though she has not seen him for years now, he's alive, and, you know, with this syndrome that they have, it could easily have not been the case. Exactly. And had he been in Guatemala, he would be dead. Precisely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it does, it, it's just different. Although, interestingly, you know, Valeriano obviously took this very hard too. Mm. He was very close to Andy. Mm. And, um, and it, it's different. I think he was not expecting when he came to the United States that this could still happen. Sure. Oh, ab- yeah. I, yeah, that's fascinating, but absolutely true, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. I And I think it's one of the hardest things that's ever happened to him in his mm-hmm. life. And he's had a lot of hard things exactly. happen in his life. So it's it's just interesting, and it is totally international. It is that, indeed. 
Um, parents are parents no matter what and we have the same experiences and when we lose children it's just the same kind of feeling absolutely yeah Mm -hmm. so um how many years ago was that now well it was it was in 1989 so it's been a a number of years ago now so 30 yeah it was 30 years ago um just a month ago um in terms of death his death yeah. yeah do you feel like it has given you an extra ability to be compassionate though for so for people that you know going through struggles it certainly has i mean in the one sense even when even when camilo was alive and because he had special needs and so forth and sometimes my wife and i would look at each other when somebody was complaining about you know their child or whatever and we thought yeah right you you don't you don't know i mean you know just be grateful for your child you know being able to function in the world fairly easily because uh you know it's so it it certainly i mean i it it helped me understand a number of things um helped me be more compassionate maybe i don't i think i was Obviously, for you're pretty death, you're compassionate anyway. On the other hand, probably it, I don't suffer fools maybe as well as I used to. I mean, in some ways, it's like, so what's really important here? You yeah, know? that's true. And so there is that, you know, maybe sort of that sort of earlier on, especially there might have been a little bit, a little bit more of that, but definitely to relate and, and more more than sympathize with people, I mean, certainly that and have empathy, but I became much, much, much more able to see grief in people, even not involving someone's death. Mm-hmm. I mean, people grieve at so much stuff. I mean, loss yes. of a job, loss of a vision, loss of a relationship. Um, but in our culture, we're not good at at naming grief, mm-hmm. whether it's grief from the death of a, of a child or a loved one that you should get over at a certain period of time, people think quicker than, <laughs> and get over is not the right language, but, but there's other grief that we, that's just there that we don't acknowledge and it will have its due if you don't, if you don't realize it's grief. So I think probably the most helpful thing in my ministry was being able to see and help people label where they were grieving mm-hmm. outside even of the death of a, of a loved one, which then allowed them to, yeah, see it as grief, process it as grief, and then be able to accommodate to that and, and carry on. So uh, th- that's, that was an interesting kind of a uh, well, I know uh, the woman that recommended that I talk to you, she suffered miscarriages mm-hmm. and felt like um, the care that she could receive from you was really key to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably part of it is that you really spoke about her going through grief and even today, even with me, she was quick to say, Oh, I, I didn't experience anything like you. And and I quickly said back, yes, you did. Mm-hmm. But you did it three times. Right, yeah. So um, people do belittle that there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, too, about a woman that I um, knew whose husband very abruptly left her. Mm-hmm. And I just, I was just talking to her in a different way. You know, I spoke, first time I spoke to her, I said, how are you? Mm-hmm. And she said, good. And I came back and I said, liar. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, um, and I think that was a huge relief to her. Precisely. Because she felt like she was supposed to just say good and that I really didn't want to know. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, I really did want to know. And she was going through grief because losing your marriage is, you are grieving that. Oh, exactly. And, and there is at least an acknowledgement when somebody dies of that yes. terrible, terrible loss. And there are ways to celebrate that person's life. For many other losses, though not as deep, still, they're, they're not publicly um, 
sanctioned grief, and there aren't ways to celebrate what what was and to acknowledge grief and so forth. And so, you know, a lot of people just suffer alone or suffer in silence um, because there there is no way to publicly acknowledge that. And so, when somebody acknowledges their grief, when they realize, yeah, that this is grief. Um, it's it really is helpful for for healing then. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too about that is that you know other people I think were very angry for her, uh, right? Sure. And and I think even when our car accident, people were very angry for me mm-hmm. because you know the woman wasn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. She was going highway speed when she had no business going highway right, speed. She right. should have been able to see for a long distance. So they were angry. And I had Christian friends that labeled it righteous anger. I I don't want to be angry. I'm sad. Sure. Exactly. And you can feel emotions at the same time. And I totally get that. But my overwhelming emotion was just sadness and grief and loss. And all these other people wanting to throw anger on me. I mean, there were times when I was angry, but I don't want to be angry every second of every day. And so that, I think, can be something that can happen to people, too. They're grieving and they're feeling loss and they're feeling sadness and people want to put other emotions on there. I think that's true. Plus, I think we, we, us men especially, I think, tend to move sadness and loss toward anger mm-hmm. because, because sadness, loss, is you, you feel helpless yes. in it. Anger is, there's energy behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think very often men still don't feel the, the loss or the hurt because it immovably more, it immediately moves to anger and that we can do something, but there's power there. Mm-hmm. Now, trouble is we're not dealing with the right emotion then. So if we're, if we're dealing with it at the level of anger, then we're missing where we really need to be dealing it with. It's just the, at the level of loss. And yeah. just that profound feeling of helplessness. Yeah, and I th- you are right. It, men have a huge struggle with that. More than women, I think, is that feeling like you really should be in control of mm-hmm. things. And when you, this is something you have absolutely no control of. Oh, oh, no. Which is the big, which is the problem. And, and even, I mean, I've had people say to me when, they, when a spouse died or something that they, you know, they, they should have been there. And I, and I, I said, you know, it seems to me that it's easier to think that there's something you could have done that you didn't than to realize that you just have no power over this. This Powerlessness is just a really very difficult emotion or sense to deal with. But that's, and that's on top of the loss of the person, it's a loss of self in the sense of, who am I now, but also where does my power lie? How can I feel so helpless, um, not in control of my own emotions, you know, because, you know, because, of course, as we all know, it can it could just hit you out of the blue and you're a blubbering idiot, you know, um, early on, especially. So I think that all that being out of control stuff is really tough. And I think maybe more for men, um, you know, than for women. I feel like I'm just struggling here. But... Well, it, it, and that's what it is. And I and I say to people often it you just, you know, you you just you stumble, you trudge through, you trudge along, you know? Um, and the, the biggest problem when somebody passes is you, you don't feel like you'll ever feel happy or celebration again. Yes. You'll never feel joy again. And I say to people, you know, the, the, the scale the scale is wrong for us. We think, we think of when we're joyful and that's who we want to be. Of course we do. And where we are is so far below that, we're, we don't even know if we can survive. So that the scale right now is, on the bottom end, it's, I don't think I can survive this, and I sure as heck don't want to. Yes. On the high side is, maybe I can survive this. Those are the poles that you're moving between. Yeah. As time goes on, then maybe the low pole is, okay, I can survive this if I have to. Yeah. And the higher pole is... You know, maybe maybe I'll enjoy something sometime. Some, yes, yeah. And then and then it moves up so that the low pole is 
sometimes you're still at that place. But but the low pole is, okay, I, I can survive. I can carry on. I can even see that I might be able to, you know, have life again. And the higher pole is I might be able to enjoy some of life again. Mm-hmm. But the, the poles are too far apart when you joy on the one end and I can't survive on the other. Make, make the high point, maybe I can survive. And yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I, it makes me think of just this past Sunday. I w- went to church and I just am never happy at church. Not at all. And it's hard for me because I used to, I used to sing in the, in the contemporary worship band. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and we sang every other week. So it's especially hard when it's my band up there and there's, you know, the woman that's replaced me and, and with all the people that I used to sing with. And I used to sing with such joy Mm -hmm. and I loved going and now I just, I can't even smile. Mm -hmm. I don't want to sing. I don't want to do anything. And, um, in the last, at the end of the service, Sunday, I just left. I just left. And what's funny is our parish nurse had left the service a couple minutes early too. And I just fell into her arms. And Mm -hmm. I said, am I ever going to be happy here again? Mm -hmm. Because I felt like I just, it's like I'm experiencing some happiness at other places, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing like today at the office, seeing three and four year old kids, they're cute and adorable. And I, and it was fun for me to do that, but I can't be happy there. And it's, and you know, in that moment I said, I I don't think I will ever be happy here again. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. Exactly. You don't know. My sense is you, you will, but you don't know because, and, and church is a place of deep emotion. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when I was preaching, I'd see people, you know, in tears and laughter. And you know, I always felt like it was a good service. People both laughed and cried. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it is a place, it's an emotional place. But when you, when you, when you feel the loss, not just of the person, but of a part of your life that you used to really be engaged in or enjoy, yeah. then it's a kind of, there, there are losses on multiple levels. Yeah, yeah. And, he, you know, and Andy used to love that I would sing, you know, mm-hmm, he would, sure. he would come up to me, he thought it was awesome. Cause you know, he was a singer, right? I mean, uh-huh. that's where, that's where he got that from. Mm-hmm. Certainly not from my husband. He would tell you he doesn't <laughs> sing at all. Um, so anyway, it, it, I think the, the, just the loss of the singing just reminds me too much of Andy too. Yeah, and so exactly. I just can't, I just sure. can't do it. Sure. And, and I think there are time, you know, there are times when you continue to work at doing things that you did before and maybe there'll be joy. And there are times when you just decide this is, this is, I'm not going to put myself through this. You know, this yeah. is something that's just not going to be a part of, of what I do right now. Right. Um, and, and I know I spoke to a different mom whose son was really into jazz music and she said, that's the one thing she just can't do yeah. is jazz music. And I was like, well, I think you can live a perfectly good life and never listen to jazz music and you're probably fine. So I, I hope to be able to get, so maybe I can just rule out like a couple things that sure. are too painful and maybe get some of the other ones back. Right. right. Yep. And I, exactly. And, and I think sometimes you're fortunate at some, at some point, certainly has been the case for me that things that seemed just so so painful early are those reminders are joyful now because mm-hmm. they you know they just keep my son very close mm-hmm. and and so that and that really does shift i never say to people you know time heals because that's not time it just is, it that's seems time, so long exactly. no. no um but it's it is it is a matter of accommodating and that's the other piece we you know we in our culture we talk about you know getting over grief or even in the stages of grief, it's acceptance. I'm sorry. I don't accept that, you know, in my case, a five and a half year old child passed, or in your case, a 14 year old was in an accident that Mm -hmm. took his life. I don't accept that. Yeah. In some ways it feels like it's giving up too much for me. It's, it's, it requires more understanding or magnanimity than I, than I want to give. But it's a reality. Yes. I accommodate to it. And I have accommodated to it. You, you have to. And, and somehow that, just for me, that seems healthier. Yeah. 
because in, so, in some ways, if you accept it, well, it's okay, even if that's not necessarily what acceptance means. No, it's not okay. It's never okay. And God didn't make it happen, which is the other thing that you hear from people. Oh, yeah. But because uh, we can get into a whole litany of those things. But, but, but it happened. It's, so you accommodate. Because if you don't accommodate, then it rules your life rather than you ruling it. And so I think that for me, that's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I think it can rule your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some people that it seems that it has. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that probably, and I think the the person that recommended that I speak with you, I have credibility as somebody who suffered the loss of a child and they have, have seen as functional and able to you know engage life fully and enjoy life again. So when our son passed many, you know, wonderful people at the visitations and, you know, after all those kinds of things. But the people most important to me, far most important, were the ones who had suffered the loss of a child. Mm-hmm. Because some of them, I knew that. Many of them, I didn't even know that until they were visiting with us. And I saw them as people who experienced life again fully, experienced joy, celebration. I, you know, I had experienced that with them. So their testimony was that that can happen. So even though I couldn't imagine it in the hole that I was in at that point, their testimony said, yeah, this can happen. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, that's really key. So I think when, you know, when we're talking our grief groups and so forth, and I was in one for a short period of time, the problem with that was, and I understand that you can tap back into that grief most any time, but the people seemed like they had never moved and that they and I that wasn't what I needed because that was my biggest fear anyway yes so the fact that people you can see people who have you know certainly not not lost any touch with the child that passed but have been able to adapt to that accommodate that and engage life fully again and experience joy and celebration that's a that's a really important testimony Mm -hmm. not and and it's also partly experiencing with them the grief and what you know what what you went through we have some folks who are in the congregation who lost a young child and um you know that's been maybe four or five years for them now but for able to be able to process with them sort of where where they are at this stage where were we are they crazy you know because that's the oh, thing oh yeah you, know? you feel like a crazy exactly for sure. exactly mm-hmm. yeah yeah, we had a couple come, that, the ones that founded Starlet Ministries. Jolynn, she's, she's been a guest on. Jolynn and her husband came very shortly after Andy died, within the first month for sure, and just came to our home and visited with us. And that did feel good mm-hmm. to have someone there and see someone who at that time was almost 11 years out um, functioning. Sure. And being parents, um, because it does get to the point where I mean, you didn't have other kids at the time. Not at the time, I, I mean, that's that has to be a struggle one way. I mean, I know for me, it was hard to be a parent because I felt like I was grieving. Sure, but I, it would also be hard to not have another child to be able to put that love into too. Right, and we didn't think we would would be able to have another child. It was just a, it was you know just a blessing that. Uh, that we do have a, a child that came along eight years later after after Camilo passed away, um, and you know, del- delightful child. And interestingly, even then, though, um, and my wife and I had dealt with with you know, we, I think we had dealt with uh, with uh, the loss of Camilo as to the extent that we that we needed to until. We were having going to have another child coming into our home, mm-hmm. and so we saw a grief counselor at that point because I couldn't figure out why. Even though I was excited about the birth of a child, and of course we both wanted a girl because, and this makes sense when you think about some of the issues. I was excited about having a child, but in some way it felt like a loss, a, a subtraction, and I mm-hmm. couldn't. Well, what what I got figured out very quickly was I was. Camilo was very well defended in me, and I was afraid that because he wasn't there personally, directly, somehow he would get lost because he wasn't there and this new child was. Mm-hmm. 
And or it's like you have a finite amount of love, and now you're gonna have to split it between two people, so you will love him half as much or something. Right, which of course it's crazy, but of course that's not the case. But it was more, you know, am I gonna be as stay as close? Is he gonna be as as close a part of my life mm-hmm. because we've got this child present that demands all this attention? Um, once I got that from my gut to my head, it wasn't an issue. And then, and ended up having a boy and both of my wife and I are, you know, very pleased about that. And, and we told the story of Camilo. He, he very, my son, my current son feels like he's, you know, he has a brother. Um, He knows all about Camilo. He knows the stories. He had some of his toys and all those kinds of things. So there are ways to, you know, to, to, to do that. But it's interesting that, you know, if there are new demands or situations, then that may require new or deeper processing. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was for us when we were ready to have this new child come into the home. And Camilo was no less, uh, you know, a present or a part of our life than he than he was before. In fact, we had somebody else to share him with. That's true. Yeah, that is true. I want to go back to when you were talking about God didn't make this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, because you do hear a lot of that, right? And and I see anger in parents and God made this happen, God let this happen. Then other extreme people saying, well, this was all part of, God, part of God's plan anyway. How do you deal with that? Especially from the ministry, you know, from your background. Sure. Um, I don't, my God is not one that pulls all the strings. Um, I'm just not a puppeteer. Mm-hmm. And we are biological creatures. Um, I think when, when William Sloan Coffin, who lost a son, um, who was, William Sloan Coffin was the pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. He was a theologian and was at, 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 at uh, uh, Divinity School as well. Um, wonderful guy, did a lot of writing, but said something about God is, God is, is low on control and high on compassion. And I think that that's, you know, for me, God doesn't make things happen in those those kind of negative things. I think God is good. So I can see God's God's work in good. Mm-hmm. And I can see the good that has come out, the growth, all those things that come out comes out of death. That I think is God's work. But the fact that a five and a half year old child died, the fact that your fourteen year old son died in a car accident, God that is not God's plan. God does not do those kinds of things. We, you know, we're biological creatures, we're flawed human beings. Um, so in, in any in any finite sense at least, mm-hmm. it that God make bad things happen to good people does not or even to bad people, does not does not compute. Now, in some very, very, very large kind of ways that are sort of beyond our, you know, our ability to process, maybe, but it's not helpful. It's, it's totally unhelpful. Now, for some people, it is easier to think that God is in control. I think that's that control or the helplessness thing again. If God made this happen, then then it must be it's for a greater good and I don't have to think that I did something wrong or that I'm so powerless or whatever. Theologically, intellectually, that works for... I don't think it works emotionally, and I think it does violence to God. And and it's really not helpful to people. No, it's horrible. When they say that to you, it's just horrible. It's horrible. We all have, yes, and I... And and I again the 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 understanding part of me says I people don't know what to say at those they feel like they have to say something and of course I was a clergy so must be that's how I feel about it and it was not at all the case you know so but it is not helpful it's 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 very unhelpful you know it was most helpful and it's and it's it seems simple yet we rarely say it. Um, of course, people said they're you know they were so sorry for us. They didn't have to say anything, but I love you. Yeah. People came. Some people came through the line, and some you know a, a friend of mine, big guy, big strong guy, and emotionally strong. And he's I love you guys. Oh, that is just wonderful. Yeah, and and I thought even at the time, wow, that was yeah that that was that's so, what you needed. Yeah, that was so helpful. Yeah, and I know my pastor too said. 
God didn't make this happen. God didn't make her run into you. Mm-hmm. God is is crying with you. Exactly. And that was really helpful to me yeah. to have yeah. that image instead of someone that let something happen, right? right? Or made something happen right. to think about God crying with me. Right. And I think Bill Coffin's thing was God shed the first tear. Mm-hmm. And and I wondered if, you know, again, I, I didn't, I wasn't big on worrying about those kinds of things, even as a pastor. It was, and I wondered if that would shake my faith, and it did not at all. Um, you know, my faith remained every bit as strong, probably stronger sense of of God's presence, sense of people's presence. Um, so, and I've certainly had been shaken. Mm-hmm, I have to say. Mm-hmm, I mean, I have been. Mm-hmm. But um, and that's very un, it's very common, and it's very understandable. Um, Right, because there, again, there's that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is nice if I can think about it in that way. If I remind myself of God weeping with me instead of, you know, letting it happen. Well, yeah, it's different now. God, God knows what it's like to lose a son. Right, right, right. Um, I, this is a story you don't know. Some of my listeners, if they've listened in the past, would know this story that, that my son, when he was seven, drew a picture of our family. And when he showed me the picture, there were four people in the family, not five. And I asked him mm. why there were four people in the family. And he said it's because he wasn't going to grow up all the way and that he was in heaven. Wow. Wow. So... You know, that's the thing. And so I tell people, God knew this was going to happen, uh, but he didn't make it happen. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. And I think that, that, you know, I hear enough stuff from people, of course, as a, you know, over the course of ministry and their experiences and so forth that I, that I just, I just leave that open, you know, I just leave, uh, I just, I just leave it open and, and. You know, there's certainly so much that happens is beyond our comprehension and reason and so forth um, and, and deep spiritual things. But that direct piece of God directed this is right. really is harmful, I think. Well, and overall, that happening to Andy and me, as, as disturbing as it was at the time, I mean, on that night that Andy died, you know, Eric and I immediately went to that wow. picture and yeah. we immediately were able to think how he was totally fine with fine it. Fine with it, right. Yeah. He just very matter-of-factly said he wasn't going to grow up all the way and he was going to be in heaven and we were going to be a family with four. Wow. Um, and obviously we do have Valeriano too, so we do have a fifth, but the picture would have made no sense with then, five in right. it at yeah. that time because right. Valeriano was, you know... Wow. In Guatemala at that time. So, um, but it, it did give comfort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't, and that didn't shake my faith and let it seem like, you know, mm-hmm. God was out to get me mm-hmm. and knew from years ago that this was going to get me. It was more just a little more of a comfort mm-hmm. to know that he's fine. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I sometimes, in, you know, since it's in, it, in funerals, I will use the language that, you know, when you're at the end of, end of your rope and out of strength, beneath isn't the great abyss, but the hollow of God's hand. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, for me, that's become even more in the, the text, a Matthew text that where um, Jesus talks about, so if a child asks you for, a, for bread, would you give a stone? Or for, for fish, would you give a serpent? How much more does God love you even than you love your child? And so after Camilo's death, I thought, you know, how much that, you know, that love, how much does God grieve when we, when we are lost or go or experience loss? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of those things really certainly became more, more profound for me. But I, for me, it's much more a sense of presence and, um, you know, sort of that guiding strength rather than, you know, God made this happen. I think that's for us to somehow, for some people to, you know, somehow maybe, maybe it's not, uh, you know, we, we're not as helpless <laughs> as the feeling is right after when somebody dies. That's just, I, 
it's just worse when you think about it that way, I think. I think so. I think so, too. The other thing that is fascinating is that, that when, you're, uh, when you're with somebody who's grieving is, of course, you, you empathize. And if you've lost a child, you really empathize. Mm-hmm. And yet it's their grief and not yours. I mean, you're grieving your own. So I had a, I had a friend that came to visitation. We we're good friends. He had kids about our the age of our son when he passed. And this guy was really, really undone. I mean, it was especially, and he was, he was grieving. And, and it got clear to me he was grieving as if this happened to his own. I mean, he was grieving the possibility of this happening to his own child, children rather than ours. And it made me mad because he wasn't there for me. Yeah. He was he was so preoccupied with the with what if this happened to him that he really couldn't be present. And I said to him, "Look, you know, this isn't this isn't Adam and Anna who died. Yeah. This is Camilo." It, it, it was fa- it was a good lesson for me as a pastor, at least. You don't want to have distance, and you empathize, and of course it t- triggers you know some of your own stuff. Oh, sure, but it's their grief, and somebody needs to be needs to needs to be functional. <laughs> you know, they need to be able to, to, to rely, they can t- totally fall apart and you may cry with them and fall apart to some extent with them, but you're going to be able to stand up and help them stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of a fascinating memory for me in terms of that, uh, yeah, that, is. That, that grief, but it was important. Well, and even with, and when you are with other grieving people, it is very important not to directly compare your grief to their grief. It's especially verbally to them like almost making it sound like, well, you didn't have it as bad as me or something. Precisely. And and, and, and even if you don't mean it that way, it could come it across come, yeah. that way. So um, you can feel with someone, but if you put too much of yourself on it, it's, it's just not going to... It sort of denies them their their space, their right to, to grieve. Um you they you know they know you're with them it is a, it's an interesting balance but i think you're, you're right and grief is individual even though there are certainly common pieces in the sense of just that total devastation but how we process it the timelines we're involved with which is which is why certainly for families i know you you must have experienced this obviously with your husband and but with your children as well but it's tough on spouses because mm-hmm. people grieve differently they grieve at different rates you know i Remember, you know, I might really be feeling something and want to say something about Camilo, but my wife seemed to be doing pretty well. I didn't want to bring her down. Right, right. Or I might be fairly up and she was really struggling, but, you know, she didn't want to bring me down. And so the person you're very closest to and have experienced this loss with, you sometimes are at at odds with or still feel alone because they're in a different sort of place or state even day to day oh absolutely day to day yeah certainly day to day yeah yeah that is important to remember i know eric and i have had that discussion that we try to not do that right and try to be just honest and open and whatever but you can't help it you can't help it (laughs) you just can't because if he's having a good day i just still don't want to ruin it even though i've promised that we won't do that right I still know we both do. Right. And and the reality is it probably won't ruin his day no, because because you get into that and you get out of it again. But intellectually, yeah. And part of it is, yeah, you may yourself not want to just go down that road, you know, just, you know, it's just uh, sort of human nature. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but it's but it's there. Yeah. I think the other thing our culture has has wrong is you, you hear the language on, you know, you turn a corner on grief and and then so one day you're feeling you're feeling pretty good and you think wow i'm you know i'm making progress and the next day you feel worse than you did before and you think oh i'm i'm worse off than ever you know well i and I, what i say to people is i you know i think grief is a very long slow bend in the road mm-hmm. so when you look ahead nothing looks different when you look back everything looks the same but and you make progress without knowing it. So at some point then you look forward and there are some new things on the horizon. Yeah. And you look back and some things that were issues are no longer there. Uh-huh. But that's you, a great analogy. But I th- it's a really it's been really helpful to a lot of people and that's exactly how I experienced it. 
Mm-hmm. And I think to be able to again have that that lens rather than oh yeah I'm better today I turned a corner. Yeah, you've seen. I some... certainly talk about that too. That that you, I know that tomorrow is not going to be noticeably better than today. It just won't be. Right. I know that, and I know that yesterday wasn't much different than today. But when you go two three months from now, then I think oh, you know what? I think things are just a little bit better. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, 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 as you go on, I think people mistake because you're, the grief is so clear and present and it's so tied with the person that died that you think, you, you don't think it, that's the problem. It's not, it's emotionally, you feel like the grief and the memory of the person are, are inseparable. Mm-hmm. And what you, what, what, what folks need to realize, because it is true, is that you can separate the grief and the memory of the person. Mm-hmm. But initially, those seem inseparable because they are tied because you, you're so in such deep grief and that person is so present in that grief that you have to hold on to one in order to hold on to the other. I've definitely felt that way. Exactly. I felt like if I let go of my grief, it's somehow a betrayal of Andy. Right. And I will be forgetting Andy if I don't feel that same depth of grief mm-hmm. that I did right away. Exactly. And I think that I think that the thing to realize is that those two are separable. Mm-hmm. That the grief you can you can let go of the grief or, or let the grief dissipate without losing that really clear, vivid memory of the person that passed. And in fact, it becomes then a, a celebration of them rather than, rather than that, you know, that deep grief that accompanies it. And, and those two, those can be separated, but because we experience them together, we don't think they can be. I think you just need to focus on the fact, the fact that it's the love. Right that you have right. that keeps you attached. Right. And that love does not change. It, it does not change at all. And as I said, just like the person rode around on your shoulder when they were living, mm-hmm. if it's a child, they do when they've passed. And not in it, you didn't. You don't grieve the when your, your child is living and they're on the edge of your consciousness, or as I like to say, riding around on your shoulder. There's not grief involved. It's... And that's the case too with the person that's passed. They still ride around on your shoulder. They're still in it, but it's but it doesn't have to be attached in time. It doesn't have to be attached to the grief that's associated with their loss. Mm-hmm. I think just even though one doesn't experience that earlier on, knowing that intellectually and realizing those two are separable is really, really helpful. It's really yeah. important. I feel like I've just come to that realization yeah. even in the last few months. And you're right. Emotionally, I still don't totally feel it. Sure. Um, but I do know it now. Yeah. And yeah. just knowing it, mm-hmm. I think, will help me get to the point of feeling it yeah. at some point. Yeah. I think the other thing that happens is people don't want to do things they did before, which is fine. Some we had we were lucky because we had a couple, a few couples, but one in particular that would call us to want us to go out and do something. And you know, we didn't feel like going usually. Sometimes we didn't go. You don't do everything you did before, but sometimes we would go. We'd often enjoy ourselves. But what I say to people is, yeah, you probably need to go out. You probably need to do some things, even if you don't feel like it. But you don't have to enjoy it. I like that actually (laughs) I like that because you do feel like you should enjoy it exactly like you did before you're not the truth is you may enjoy something you go out you know when families get together even at a death they they still act like families and they enjoy some things because you're together with folks you enjoy seeing friends that come to visit even at a even at a visitation for somebody's died so some of those things you enjoy even in the midst but so you may or may not enjoy it, but you know you you don't have to you don't have to engage life or feel about things or experience things the way you did before. That's okay. Mm-hmm. It'll it'll come, but you don't have to right now. And that's not so so that allows you to get out to do some things to move along a little bit um, and don't, and not stop yourself before you before you get started. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for being on today. I really have enjoyed our conversation. Well, glad to do it. And again, sorry for your loss. And glad I'm you're sorry for yours. Thank you. I'm glad you're doing this. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.